Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Carly Biondi, and today we'll be discussing the Myanmar coup and its potential effects on the U.S.-China relationship. As many of you may know, the unexpected coup on February 1st has unleashed a cascade of events that have shocked the world and launched a domestic struggle for political power that continues to become more and more violent with each passing day. As the domestic situation in Myanmar escalates, new uncertainty will continue to introduce challenges into the Myanmar-China relationship, as well as the U.S.-China relationship. Today, we will be unpacking these complicated topics with expert Yoon Sun. Yoon is a senior fellow and co-director of East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center. Her expertise is in Chinese foreign policy, US-China relations, and the Chinese relations with neighboring countries. Thank you so much, Yoon, for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Carly. It's always a pleasure. To start, can you please lay out briefly an overview of the events in early February and what has been the domestic response? Uh, sure, so just like you, um, like what you just discussed, the, this coup I think has, came, um, has come unexpected for most of the uh, policy wonks and observers of, uh, of Myanmar. Um, what, what really happened needs to be traced back to the, uh, the election of 2020. So in November of 2020, there was a general election in Myanmar and in which the uh, NLD, the ruling party at the time, won a landslide victory. In fact, the NLD party gained more seats and gained more popular vote than they did uh, in the uh, 2015 election. So the military, on the other hand, raised questions about the uh, irregularities and frauds in the, in the election. Um, and has demanded the NLD to postpone the, uh, convene, the convening of the, uh, the parliament on February 1st. So February 1st was like a cutoff date. If the military didn't do anything, the new parliament would convene and they would select the candidates for um, president and the two vice presidents. And then the result of the 2020 election would have been um, consolidated and confirmed. So the fact is that the military find that um, scenario unacceptable. So in the early morning of February 1st, around 4 a.m. in the morning, it, uh, it staged the coup and took over power from the, uh, from the government. The domestic reaction has been, we've, we've been seeing the domestic reaction in Myanmar escalating. So I would say that for the first week or 10 days or so, we hear, uh, we heard the domestic opposition but the uh, mass demonstration and the, the protest among the people against the military and against the military takeover really took up speed uh, around mid-February. Uh, and now we are seeing uh, mass demonstrations in almost all big cities in Myanmar, as well as the, uh, the ethnic states in the country. So I think the domestic reaction has been, um, has been growing and has been firmly opposing the military takeover and there is now even the calling that, um, because this movement is called the Civil Disobedience Movement, the CDM. Now the CDM is not only aiming for the reversal of the coup, not only the status quo anti before 
February, uh, before February 1st, there are also voices calling for the complete revision of the 2008 constitution, which will deprive the military is 25% of the seats at the parliament and also other privileges that are guaranteed by the 2008 constitution. And is there a way to kind of bring resolution to Myanmar without continued escalating violence? How do you really see that domestic response playing out further as their calls continue to become more uh, vehement in response to the growing violence um, of military forces? Uh, that is a great question. I think that really raised uh, the, the issue of the incentive structure. So how do we, uh, how do we force the Burmese military to change its calculation? I think for the um, for people who are level-headed in the country, um, they're still hoping for a political deal. They hope that the military leadership and the leadership of the NLD could still come together to come up with a political deal that in the end represents some concessions on both sides, but will uh, resolve the coup, of the political crisis in a relatively peaceful manner. Because uh, at the current rate, we're going to see the continued escalation of the mass demonstration. And we're also going to see continued escalation of the tension between the military, between the soldiers on the street, and also the demonstrators. We have already seen dozens of, uh, of casualties from these confrontations. So if that is uh, the, the very scenario that we are trying to avoid, I think people are still hoping that maybe there will be a political deal. But then the question is how to bring the military to the negotiation table. Currently, they see that, hey, we have power, we have the guns, we're in control, we don't need to negotiate with NLD. So I think the escalation of the demonstration is one way to exert pressure on the, on the military. But is it going to be sufficient? I think if the military takes a lesson from the, uh, from the coup d'etat in Thailand uh, in 2014, they probably will believe that well, we are in control of the country and regardless of how the people oppose our uh, military take takeover, we can remain in control. So how to create the incentive structure to convince the military that they need to come to a negotiation and negotiate the result out of this, out of this coup is really the critical question here. And speaking of historical parallels, do you think that the protesters in Myanmar have been influenced by the 2019 Hong Kong protests, or even more recently, the protests in Thailand? Uh, I think there are definitely a lot of similarities. For example, these uh, movements have been have been leaderless. So when the Burmese government or Burmese military were trying to find out who is leading these uh, these CDM, uh, the civil disobedient movements, they couldn't find. They couldn't identify a leadership structure, a couple of people on the top leading the, uh, the movement ahead. So I think that really has created this, uh, this question as well, how the government can counter it. Because it's very much based on people's spontaneous organization among themselves. So I definitely see a lot of similarities. I think there are also uh, the technical aspect of, uh, of these movements that uh, we can draw some similarities as well. Because uh, in Myanmar, the penetration rate of the cell phone usage, especially smartphone usage, among uh, younger generation is, um, I think it's extremely, I, I seem to remember it's over 90%. So for people who can rely on, the, um, on their cell phone, the smartphone, to, to transmit message and also to organize among themselves, I think the technology aspect of it has played a very important role. But then, of course, the military's reaction is uh, now they are 
uh, suspending internet service every night from 1 a.m. to uh, to 9 a.m. So if they want, I think there are technical capabilities that they can adopt to uh, suspend the internet usage even further. Like for example, I think two days ago, there are even cases of power outage in, uh, in, in Yangon. So with power outage, you certainly cannot charge your phone and you cannot use internet service. So I think the government probably has ways to shut it down. Switching gears a little bit to the international response. I know that many different international leaders have spoken out against the coup. China's reaction has been remarkably neutral. Can you explain a little bit about why that might be and what the strategic interests of China are in Myanmar? Well, China's neutrality still originates from this fundamental principle in its foreign policy, which is non-interference in the internal affairs of another country. So although the Chinese, um, I don't think the Chinese approve of the coup because the coup is un has undermined a lot of the strategic designs and the commercial projects that China have launched in Myanmar in collaboration with the NLD government. So I always say that if China had the choice, it probably would prefer Myanmar to be under the um, under the ruling of the NLD government. But the problem here is uh, China doesn't see itself as having a choice. So it has to passively deal with whatever the domestic politics in Myanmar transpires to, to be. So when the military coup happened, um, the Chinese find themselves in a, in a very difficult spot because uh, following the non-interference principle, they can't really interfere and they can't really oppose and they cannot really, um, like some would say, that exert pressure on the military to change its uh, to change its decision. But on the other hand, the mounting pressure on China, both from the domestic public opinion side in Myanmar, and also from the international community, for China to take the uh, the, the right position, is uh, is growing, and that has exacerbated the strategic or the dilemma that China is uh, is put in. In terms of strategic interests that China have in, in Myanmar, I always say that China is interested in Myanmar not because of what the country itself can offer China. It's not, yes, Myanmar has a domestic market and is uh, somewhere around 53 million people, but it's not tremendously huge. And Myanmar has natural resources like mineral and energy resources. But for China, the more important aspect of Myanmar lies in a strategic location. So it's the fact that Myanmar is sitting at the juncture between South Asia, Southeast Asia, as well as China's access to the Indian Ocean. So when China looks at Myanmar, it's more about connectivity. It's more about turning Myanmar into a connectivity hub so China can access other parts of the region and other parts of the world through Myanmar. And the Sino-Myanmar uh, oil and gas pipelines are a good example in this aspect because the oil that the pipeline transports is actually from the uh, Middle East and from North Africa. So the strategic interest that China has is really about Myanmar's strategic location. And that also determines that in China's preference, China would prefer for Myanmar to be a relatively normal and stable country, because that's how you guarantee the connectivity will, con will, will continue. But now with the military coup, not only the domestic political structure is, uh, is ruptured, um, Myanmar is also put under a lot of international condemnation, as well as um, upcoming expected um, international isolation. So that inevitably will cast a very large shadow over the connectivity projects that China wants to pursue in the country.
Thinking a little bit about the U.S. response, I know Antony Blinken has come out against the coup, but I'm thinking more um, in the context of the U.S.-China relationship. How can the U.S. and China avoid adding any additional tension to the an already contentious bilateral relationship while the U.S. also responds to the coup? Well, we know that U.S. and China are on not on the same page, I would say, in terms of the, the military coup, to say the least. I think the Chinese would like to stay neutral. They are avoiding uh, strong worded condemnation. In fact, for the UN Security Council statement that China approved, uh, they removed the word condemnation. And instead they use the word deep con deeply concerned. So I think the Chinese would like to avoid um, to, be, to be seen as taking a side in the, in the Myanmar coup. But I think for the U.S., there's no, there's no question. The U.S. is on the side of the democratically elected government and also on the side of the Burmese people. So that put U.S. and China on two very different pages coming to Myanmar. And at the beginning of the, um, I would say for the first half of February, there were a lot of speculations about Myanmar going to be the next um, clash issue or clash point between U.S. and China because it pursues these different agendas. And I, I disagree with that assessment. I think what we are, what we should try to do is now to pose Myanmar as a, as a focus point of US-China great power competition, because that will only exacerbate the domestic situation. That will only put China and US in a, in a more confrontational and a more difficult spots. So instead, I think the two great powers should have conversation about what's happening in the country and about what should happen in the next step. Because uh, the escalation of tensions, the loss of human lives, and also the humanitarian disasters that we are expecting on the streets of Yangon, they're in nobody's interest. If that happens, China will be put in a more difficult spot because China will be demanded to, uh, to answer for it and to carry responsibility for it. And US certainly does not wanna see that scenario happen either. So I think at least for these two countries, for these two great powers, there is ample room for them to come together and to discuss their concerns, their different perspectives, and what they see as the most likely and the most amicable resolution to this uh, constitutional crisis or this political crisis in Myanmar. And only through consultation and through dialogues will Washington and Beijing be able to avoid the clashes as some of the strategists would like to, uh, to pose Myanmar uh, issue as. As you're laying out that potential roadmap, it really seems like cooperation between the US and China is at the very root of a reasonable, rational de-escalation of the current situation in Myanmar. Are there any historical parallels that could help us create a roadmap to the type of cooperation that you're talking about? Are there any perhaps other Asian nations or any um, lessons from the past that we can pull forward into this moment and, and hope for a uh, de-escalation and a reasonable outcome? There actually is one and that's the case of Cambodia. So we know that the Cambodia after, uh, after Khmer Rouge, there was a civil war and then um, the great powers needed to step in and talk about a peace arrangement and a peace regime and the roadmap to, uh, to, to democratically elected government um, in, in Cambodia. And as a result of that process, in the end, we know that the United Nations 
um, in fact chaired the, uh, the election in, um, in Cambodia in early 90s, and that created a legitimate government and gradually to consolidate the different political forces and consolidated the, uh, the different political conflicts in the country. And today, although people won't say that Cambodia is, uh, is a sterling example of, uh, of democracy in Southeast Asia, but at least the country has avoided a continued civil war, continued loss of human lives, and the country could embark on some of the, uh, the agenda in terms of domestic, um, domestic reconciliation and domestic development. So it's not the best sterling example that but it probably is what we can hope that could happen in this case. But then, of course, I think the, the, the critics will argue that the situation in Cambodia really evolved for more than two decades before it came to that point that the great powers really came together to come up with a solution. So Myanmar is probably too early for it. And some would also argue that Myanmar is, uh, is different because the country is bigger, the ethnic composition is more complicated, and also Myanmar's uh, strategic location is also different from, from Cambodia. So there are those comparisons that can be made, but there are also a uh, distinct nature or distinct feature of, uh, of Myanmar uh, that would differentiate itself from, from the case of, uh, of Cambodia. But at least we know that it is possible. It has been done before. And if the great powers really have the will and believe that the cost of their inaction is going to outweigh the benefit of their action, then they will take action. You've just mentioned the ethnic composition of Myanmar, and I also agree with you that it's a unique circumstance to Myanmar, obviously not to Asia in general, but could you talk a little bit about the ethnic minority groups, what's been their reaction to the coup, what their participation has been domestically, and what they're asking for in a resolution? Ah, that's a good question. So Myanmar, officially, they have 135 ethnic groups. And this does not include, for example, the Anglo-Burmese or the Indian Burmese and the Chinese Burmese and the Rohingya people, the, Bang the Bangladeshi uh, Burmese, as we um, as no, well, known as the uh, Burmese with uh, foreign origins. So foreign origin Burmese are not regarded as their distinct ethnic groups. But uh, the country has officially recognized 135 ethnic groups. Um, and Several of these, I wouldn't say the majority, but um, there have been dozens of uh, ethnic armed organizations, especially in the um, in the border area between Myanmar and China, and in the border area between Myanmar and Thailand, that have been fighting for their rights. And if you ask them what 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 are the rights that you are fighting for, it really varies. But uh, overall, I think people demand uh, political rights and also demand the ability to determine the economic resources that are produced on their own land. So a federalism is, uh, is what people have been, have been uh, talking about. It's, it's very interesting to observe that how the EAOs, the ethnic armed organizations position themselves in this, uh, in this coup. Because uh, for the most cynical ethnic minorities, what has happened in terms of the coup is essentially a inter-Bama problem that whether it is a Burmese military or it is what, or it is a Naudi government, they are all Burmans. Burmans is the majority ethnic group of the country that represents, I think, around 60% of the, of the population of the country. So the conflict or the confrontation within the Burman, the Burman group, 
between the ethnic, uh, I'm sorry, between the military and between this, uh, the Democratic and now the government, that's really an inter-Burma problem for, for some ethnic minorities. Because they would argue that even if NLD was in power, the ethnic minorities' life didn't really didn't really change. And when they were trying to um, trying to run in the 2020 election and try to win win seat, in order to use the constitutional approach, the legal approach to protect their political rights, they realized that the design of the electoral system, the first past the post system, has favored the uh, NLD tremendously. So this is why that we did not see the anticipated ethnic political party gaining more seats uh, in the 2020 election at all. So I think for the ethnic groups, there are some groups who are even um, supportive of the idea of constitutional revision to change the uh, first past the post electoral system to a proportional representation system. And that is exactly what the military is, uh, is trying to propose and trying to revise. And then um, I think the ethnic populations, the ethnic people, not the armed organizations or the political organizations that are representing them, the people are more outraged by the, by the military coup itself. And that is why we're seeing the um, demonstrations not only in the Burma regions, uh, we're also seeing demonstrations in the ethnic states. So in Shan state, in Qing stage, in, uh, in Kaching state, we're also seeing massive uh, demonstrations against the military takeover. We've talked a lot today about the US-China reaction as well as the domestic reaction. I just wanna take a second and make sure that we're um, looking at all of the players here. I was wondering if you think that ASEAN will take a stand and what impact that might have beyond just an expression of moral support um, which is important symbolically, but I also think we're hoping that there are some uh, multilateral institutions that can help bring uh, the Myanmar military to the table, as you suggested before. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, uh, what is the stand of ASEAN? Well, Myanmar is a member of ASEAN. So, and ASEAN also has this, uh, this, uh, this um, requirement on, uni on unanimous position about a certain issue. And ASEAN also follows non-interference of internal affairs of the, member, of the member state. So to expect ASEAN to take a position is going to be extremely hard because then the question is who represents Myanmar? Um, like for example, the, the military government has appointed its own um, minister for foreign affairs but the Minister of Foreign Affairs, his legitimacy has not been recognized by ASEAN or by the international community. So I think it would be very difficult for ASEAN to take a collective position on this issue. Although this does not prevent individual members of ASEAN to, to take a stronger position or to take a more active uh, role in the, in, the, in the Myanmar situation. And we have seen, so for example, two countries, Indonesia and Thailand, are trying to provide some external mediation or facilitation of a political dialogue in, inside Myanmar. So honestly, I think that's also where China hopes that things could improve or things could be, be turned around. Um, so I think now is not necessarily whether ASEAN as a collective organization will take a stand. It is more what individual members of the ASEAN uh, as an organization will, will do respectively. And from your understanding of the situation and the research that you've been doing, is there anyone regionally that would be in the best position to assist 
the domestic response in bringing the military to the table other than China and a potential multilateral institution? Does, is there a country that looks willing to you to engage in this way? Um, I haven't seen that country yet. <laughs> um, I think there are a couple of candidates that are being uh, circulated. So for example, India. India arguably has very good relationship with, uh, with both sides. Maybe not as much influence as China has over the military, but also significant amount of influence. Uh, there's also Russia. Russia has had um, a, well a very close arms sales relationship with the Burmese military, but I guess we could you could argue that Russia's relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi and NLD is relatively thin. And then there is also um, also Japan because uh, the Japanese special envoy for the peace process. Mr. Sasakawa has been had been visiting the country and trying to uh, provide more mediation on the um, on the on the development in in Rakhine State. So none of these candidates is perfect. And if you ask me, I do think that China has most leverage over the Burmese military and also has the, the longest standing relationship with both parties in this political impasse. So um, I, think, I think it is fair to say that, that pe when people expect China to take a stance, they do see, and I also do see that China has a capability to, to influence the result of this, uh, of this, political, um, this political impasse. But the problem is that um, China is not willing, although it has the ability. Um, and China probably find it very difficult to, to try to design a future or an end game that will be um, that will be acceptable for our sides or our parties in, in Myanmar. So, so the reputational risk is going to be exceedingly high, regardless of whether it intervenes or not. Thinking next, I just want to switch gears a little bit and really talk about Aung San Suu Kyi, because I think she has a role in this that we really haven't covered yet. Obviously, she's currently in detention and is being tried. I just want to understand from your perspective how you see her engaging in this crisis and how you see resolution for her in particular. Well, after the Rohingya crisis, I think the international community's comments or the assessment of Aung San Suu Kyi has become more mixed. That uh, before she was this uh, democratic icon, Nobel Peace Prize laureate and applauded everywhere she went. But then the Rohingya crisis really tainted her image and tainted her reputation. And people start to question whether she is indeed the democratic leader as she claimed to be. But regardless, I think there's no, there's very little doubt in the international community that she and her party won the 2020 election fairly and squarely. So the military coup, regardless of what military excuses might be, is inexcusable. So coming to this uh, resolution of the, of, the political, of the political impasse, I think the first question is you cannot have a resolution when one party is still being jailed or under house arrest by the other party. That so far since the beginning of the coup, no outsiders has had access to, to Aung San Suu Kyi. And people don't know where she stands and how she is doing. And people do know that she is being put on trial, but there has been no zero communication. So that's not a place where you can start to talk about a political resolution. So in the political resolution, the two parties will at least be 
um, be able to talk on a relatively equal footing. But now none of the mediators or none of the parties who offer to mediate from external, um, from external sources has access to her. So I think that is really the biggest roadblock currently that's blocking the possibility of a, of a political deal. You cannot have a deal when one side is overwhelmingly controlling the situation and the other side is nowhere to be seen because she's under house arrest. So I think in terms of Aung San Suu Kyi, I know there have been a lot of criticisms of her, but coming to the 2020 election and this military coup, I think people's position are unanimous. And my final question here today is about the role of women in the protest domestically. I think we've seen um, international outlets reporting on women leading this internal response to the military coup. And I was just wondering if you can, again, comment on that and help us understand how this role is developing, why women are stepping, stepping forward at this moment and how that is um, historic. Yeah, I think the growth, this relates to the growth of the civil society in Myanmar since 2011, right? I think this relates to the, the development of women's power and also the use, the Burmese use and the, uh, for example, the Burmese journalism, the media, different civil society organizations, non-governmental uh, non organizations. So in the past 10 years, we really have seen tremendous progress in this country. And the progress not only take place on the, on, the, on the highest level. So it's not just about the elections that we saw in 2015 and then in 2020. It's about on the grassroots level, the mind, the mindset and the perception and the mentality of the Burmese people are really gradually shifting, which is an, another reason that why people don't believe that the military will be able to do the same thing they did in 1998 because uh, Myanmar is no longer the country it is 30 years ago. People's mind have changed. Now with the modern technology, with cell phone, with internet, information gets around and people do have access to those information. So I think this is a tremendous progress of the country that no matter what happened, the world will have to recognize. And this has happened with the, I would say the assistance of the whole international community, helping Myanmar to pick up its speed. And in this process, Women's organization are really one of the unique areas I would say we have seen in uh, in Southeast Asia. Well, in Southeast Asia, women are um, not only covering uh, carrying half of the sky. Sometimes we we'll probably see women covering more than half the half of the half of the sky. So um, I think the women's organization, especially those that we see uh, in the ethnic areas, are playing a tremendous role in social mobilization, in political organization and in terms of uh, providing, for example, the needed social services and the needed political services that we are um, we're lacking in this country. So I'm sure you, you also know a couple of uh, very distinguished female uh, activists and the female political leaders in, in Myanmar, not only Aung San Suu Kyi, but from the ethnic political parties and also from the, uh, from the NLD party on the, on the grassroots level. So I think this is one thing that people have not paid as much attention to um, as uh, to the, the bigger change such as a political coup. Thank you so much, Yoon. I just wanted to thank you again for giving us your reflections today. It's certainly given us a lot of background and a lot to think about. I did wanna open the floor to you and allow you to make any final comments on any aspect of a Myanmar-US-China relations, China-Myanmar relations that we have not covered. 
Uh, thank you. I think we pretty much covered, covered everything. So very thorough questions. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.